Howdy and welcome to the 10-Week Bible Study. I'm your host, Darren Hibbs, and I can't wait to jump into Revelation 2, 12-29 today. Well, welcome back to the 10-Week Bible Study. This is week two, day two of our study of Revelation. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, fill our hearts with the knowledge of you today. We want to encounter you in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. With that, let's jump into God's Word. I'll be reading today from the NIV. This is Revelation 2, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. Actually, pause there. Jesus is the one with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, right? So he's the one... Um, as described here in, in the, the beginning of, of, or at the end of chapter one, he's presenting himself to the church of Pergamum that he's got a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. We're going to see later in the book that we know what this means. This is the word of God, right? This is going to be defined. This is a, a symbol here, but it's going to be defined for us throughout the book of Revelation. It's the word of God coming out of his mouth. We know from elsewhere in Scripture, the Word of God is a sharp, double-edged sword, right? It cuts in either direction. Doesn't matter which way you swing it, it cuts. And so the Word of God is, is powerful and it's dangerous, right? It is, it is powerful and dangerous, and that's what we're talking about here. And Jesus is defining himself as that guy. I'm the one with the Word of God coming out of my mouth. That's what we're to understand here. All right, verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet... You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith to, uh, in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is put to death in your city where Satan lives. So that's twice in this, this little paragraph here where, where Jesus says, hey, Satan lives in your city. All right, so there's, there's several things going on here in the city of Pergamum. Um, Pergamum was actually a very important city in these days. Um, if you've ever heard of the library in Alexandria, the famous library, the, the repository of books in Alexandria that, that famously were lost in fires and wars and things like that, um, <clears throat> Pergamum actually had a bigger library. And, and, and during this time period, Pergamum was actually trying to become a center of, of learning and knowledge. And many of the books that disappeared from the library in Alexandria actually ended up in Pergamum. Um, and so this was a, a competing city to be one of the greatest cities on earth. It's where a, a very famous temple of uh, Zeus was. You can actually go and see this temple in Germany. This this actual literal temple has been reassembled at a, a, a museum in Berlin. Um, some people think that actually maybe this temple to Zeus might have had something to do with this, you know, the, the throne of Satan where Satan actually lives. And there's something to this. This is not just like, hey, there's, there's demons and, you know, Satan is there trying to tempt people. It's like there's something special about the city of Pergamum where there's special demonic activity related specifically to Satan himself. Um, Pergamum was also the, the city where the temple of Asclepius was, uh, an ancient Greek Roman uh, god of healing. Actually, Asclepius, I believe, is Greek, a Greek god. Um, 
the the symbol of Asclepius, you might be familiar with it, is a snake wrapped around a pole. Now, it's a single snake wrapped around, wrapped around a pole. Um, many people, so this is actually the medical symbol, if you will. This is a symbol for medicine. Many people incorrectly associate the caduceus with um, healing and medicine, where it's two snakes wrapped around a pole, and at the top, it, it almost it looks like a T, the caduceus does. It's got wings at the top, and uh, going in either direction, there's two snakes wrapped around that. That's called a caduceus. That is actually not uh, in any way, shape, or form throughout history related to medicine. Um, the reason that was used for a period of time, most hospitals and, and hospital systems have gone away from using a caduceus now as their logo, but the story behind that was uh, uh, like some guy in the army 120 years ago was given the task of coming with a logo, and he incorrectly identified the caduceus when he was trying to use the Asclepius, the symbol the symbol of the goddess Asclepius, the goddess Asclepius, and um, and uh, found the caduceus by mistake. And so using a caduceus for medicine was always a mistake. And most, most places have gone away from that, but it's still a very recognizable, recognizable symbol. The Asclepius, this temple, actually you would go there to try and be healed to this temple and they would have literally have snakes all over the place. It's weird. Um, but it actually, it goes back to, you know, the, the emergence of the god Asclepius comes up sometime after the children of Israel are leaving Egypt and they start getting bitten by by vipers and dying and Moses makes this pole with the the snake wrap around it and they look up to that for their salvation um this god Asclepius is Genesis is sometime after that so this is actually um an idolatrous version of the Pole that's that Moses made for healing, where they could be bitten by the serpents, they'd look up at the staff and and be healed. The children of Israel wandering around the desert. Anyway, so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in Pergamum. It's a very principal city, and and so all of these these things we don't know why Satan. Why well, we're told that Satan lives there, but we're told that he does, and then it's bad. Right there's a lot of there's a pers- there's persecution and there's there's demonic power and activity going on there verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Um <clears throat> pause right there. Go back through the Old Testament and you won't find this story. Now, there is the story of Balaam and Balak. Now, Balaam, if you remember, he's in the book of Judges when the people of Israel are coming into the land. He is mentioned in the book of Joshua. But when the children of Israel are, are about to take the land, and they're, they're wandering in the desert. They're on the east side of the Jordan River. They're conquering the lands on the east side of the Jordan River during the book of Judges while Moses is still their leader. And the story of Balaam, he's the guy who's paid by Balak to curse the Israelites, and he can't do it. He can only prophesy blessing over them. And at one point, he's trying to like go to where he can prophesy a curse over them, and, and his donkey sees this giant angel with a flaming sword waving back and forth, and his donkey won't do what he's asking him to do. And he Balaam hits the donkey. He's like, go this way, you stupid donkey. And the donkey turns around and looks at Balaam. And is like, 
and with human words is why did you hit me right Balaam has got the the donkey that speaks to him and uh, so it's that supernatural encounter you're probably familiar with that story well um, Balak is is trying to get Balaam to prophesy a prophetic curse over Israel and he can't do it he's paying him and so but this particular story that's being referenced is not in the Old Testament what it is, is in the Jewish history. This is a Talmudic story. So in the Talmud, this story exists. And, and kind of the backstory here is that after trying to pay Balaam multiple times to uh, curse the Israelites and destroy them before they destroyed them, um, you know, uh, Balaam finally gives up. Balak gives up. And Balaam goes home. Balaam is on his way home from not being able to do anything but proclaim a blessing over the Israelites. Balak, in this extra-biblical Talmudic story, sends a messenger after Balaam with a big, you know, you know, picture guy with two bags of money with little dollar signs on him, right? He's like, just tell me what I have to do to destroy the Israelites, and this money is yours. And Balaam finally says, listen, here's the deal. If you convince the people of Israel to intermarry with your daughters. Then they will be seduced into like uh, eating the food, sacrifice the idols, worshiping the idols themselves. If they've, they've, God has prohibited the Israelites from intermarrying with other nations, specifically because God does not want them worshiping the idols of those foreign nations. But if you convince your daughters to go and marry the Israelites then you can convince them to worship your pagan gods and your idols, and then God will be angry at them, and actually God will destroy them for you. This is what Balaam tells the messenger to Balak. The messenger to Balak's like, here, have the your big pots of money, uh, for which Joshua ends up putting Balaam to death later. Um, but Balaam, the, the messenger Balak goes back to Balak and tells him that. And he's like, oh, okay, well, let's try that. So they send the women. And then we do have that story in the Old Testament where the children of Israel, especially the leaders, they start intermarrying with these women. And then they start taking on their idols and they start worshiping their idols. And a plague breaks out and starts killing thousands of the people of Israel. And so exactly what Balaam said and convinced Balak to do, it's exactly what happens. The Lord strikes out against the Israelites on, on behalf of this idolatry and this wickedness. So Balak did not have to go to war against the Israelites. The Lord goes against uh, goes to war against them because of this, this, um, this enticement to sexual immorality, which is exactly what was going on, right? And so Jesus is saying, just like this Talmudic story that you know, and again, the story that is told you, the story that it's referencing is not in Scripture itself. We have kind of tangential references to this in Scripture, but not this story itself. But this story that's being referenced is a real story in the Talmud, and so it's telling us that this is what's going on, and you've committed the sins of Balaam. You've been enticed into sexual immorality. That's that's the message to the, the church of uh, Pergamum. So verse 15, likewise, you have also you also have those that hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent there, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This is a theology that Jesus does not like, this, this destruction of men, destroyer of men, which is what Nicolaitans means. 
Again, we don't know exactly what this was, but the Church of Ephesus, they stood against the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the Church of Pergamum, they've adopted it. <clears throat> so he's saying, you know, listen, you got these good things going on, you got these bad things going on, but repent, otherwise I'm going to come against you and I'm going to fight against you with the sword out of my mouth. You're going to be my enemy. And we're going to see later in the book of Revelation, that's a big deal. <laughs> that's a big deal. The people um, the people that Jesus comes and fights against with the sword out of his mouth, they don't live very long. Literally and physically, they don't live very long. So this is a, a big deal. Verse 17, he who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, written on it, known only to the one who receives it. All right, so hidden manna. Um, this is an interesting thing, right? What is the hidden manna? We know what manna was. Manna was the, the bread that fell down, that came down from heaven and provided for the children of Israel the 40 years in the desert. They didn't have to work or anything like that. There was just bread for them all the time. Uh, the Lord provided it supernaturally on the desert floor. Uh, the hidden manna, what that means is is very interesting. That's unclear. Does it mean that the Lord is is going to provide this you know supernatural provision? I think there's something to that. We're going to see later in the book of Revelation, there is a promise to believers for supernatural provision in the midst of very difficult times. I think that's probably what this is referring to, but I don't know that for a fact. This is one of those things that this is a little bit mysterious. What is the hidden manna? It's an interesting thing to say. The other thing here uh, is that this, this whoever overcomes is going to get a white stone with a new name written on it. It's going to be known only to the person who receives it. We're going to get a little hint of this later in the book of Revelation. Jesus is actually going to give everyone new names. Jesus is going to have a new name. Um you know, essentially written on his forehead and these kinds of things. But this white stone, um, some people have postulated what this might mean is, is there was certain times in Greek history in the court system where instead of having like a, a, a jury of your 12 peers, you might have 60, 70, 80, 100 men would be brought in to hear a case and they would be given a white stone and a black stone. And, uh, after the case was heard, every man would, on their way out, drop in one of those two stones in a jar. White was innocent, black was guilty. And, um, and so this white stone is a reference to innocence in the midst of judgment, right? If you're being judged, if you've been accused of something, you're going before the judge, you want judgment. You want people to judge you, and you want them to judge you as innocent, right? So this is a good thing. And so, most a lot of scholars believe that that's what this is a, an external reference to that would have been a, a, a fairly common understanding at the time, is this white stone meant innocence, right? So, the person who overcomes, you're going to get this white stone like in a, in a trial, a Greek trial, um, but you're going to have a new name written on it, and you're the only person that knows that name. And I find that very fascinating, intriguing, and powerful because... For all eternity, the Lord is going to give us who overcome a, a new name. Um, that may seem a little weird, but you know, 
there's going to be an eternity where there's no more shame, no more sin, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, none of those kinds of things. And our name in this life, every single one of us, no matter how purely you live as an individual, you're going to have regrets. You're going to have sin. You're going to have things that that you wish you hadn't done. And to some extent, there's other people that know you by those. There's, there's always in life, there's always going to be people that know you by your worst moment. And they know your name by your worst moment of your life. And Jesus is saying, for all eternity, I'm taking that away. I'm giving you a new name to which there is nothing negative associated with it. I think that's powerful. Verse 18. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Again, this, this image, he's referring to himself with this image that he, he showed to John in chapter 1, verse 19. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. So, so good things, like they've grown in their faith and their perseverance. They've grown. But the people of Thyatira, he has this against them, 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. This is the same thing that we saw um, to the church of Pergamum, right? The same uh, sexual immorality and, and eating this food sacrifice to idols. Verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will pay each of you according to your deeds. All right. A couple things. In the context of the church of, uh, of Thyatira, this is a woman named Jezebel. This is not a reference to the Old Testament wife of King Ahab, Jezebel. Um, although maybe she was named after the wicked queen Jezebel, I don't know. Um, but this is not some veiled reference to the Old Testament passage in the Old Testament woman Jezebel. Um, <clears throat> many people try to make this link, and it just doesn't exist biblically. The the woman the 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 woman Jezebel in the Old Testament. There's nothing reference to her as to sexual immorality being one of the issues. There's a lot of problems with Jezebel, um, and maybe sexual immorality was one of the issues going on in Israel at the time. It probably was, but because it almost always is. But that's not something listed as, as one of her great sins in the Old Testament. This is a distinct and unique thing using someone with the same name. So don't uh, don't read too much into that and make more of it than what it is. Um, I've also seen lots of people talking about like the spirit of Jezebel, like this this Jezebel spirit is is some kind of a thing. Um, what we're talking about is sexual immorality, and not just sexual immorality, but the um, permissiveness of sexual immorality, meaning like saying, hey, it's okay to be sexually immoral. Right, that's the thing that's going on. Jezebel is teaching people in this church, in this city, that it's okay to be sexually immoral before God. 
right? God is okay with you being sexually immoral. This is actually in in the United States right now. There's lots of pastors, lots of churches that come up with this very same theology that, hey, God, it's it's not a sin to be sexually immoral in this way, this way, this, you know, in five different ways. It's not a sin before the Lord. You know, he, he wants you to be you. He wants, you know, your fullest expression of yourself is to be yourself and, you know, love is love and all these kinds of things. And it's absolutely unbiblical. It's not true. It's destructive in the same way that Thyatira is, is permitting her to do this. And the Lord is saying, I am dealing with her right now. You can see that. Like I've actually, like I made, she's sick and her children are about to die because of this, because they're inheriting this as well. Um, and when, you know, I deal with her and I judge her for what she's teaching, you're going, all of you are going to see just how real this is, but you have to put off her teaching that sexual immorality is acceptable. That's, that's what's being said there. Um, so summarize there, right? The last two churches, sexual immorality, bad don't engage in it. More important even than that, than not engaging in sexual morality, don't teach that it's okay. Do not teach that sexual immorality in any way, shape, or form is okay. Now, is sexual immorality the the unforgivable sin? No. No. You know, is is homosexuality the unforgivable sin? No. No, it's not. We can all find redemption before the Lord. There are all of these things when it comes to sexual immorality that the, the people think, well, that's the unforgivable sin. And for whatever reason, you know, in, in our context, in the church, people think, well, homosexuality is way worse than, than heterosexual, you know, sin. And they're not. They're absolutely not. Both of these things are equally destructive. They're equally destructive. Are there cultural implications one over the other? Yes. But as far as like that sin in your life and in the life of the church, especially if the church is going to say, hey, it's cool beans to be as sexually immoral as you want, to do these kind of things, it's completely destructive, completely destructive. We cannot allow it. We cannot teach it. Right now, I actually find myself in the context of a church and, and, and it's, it's been incredibly painful. Um, and it was a complete shock to my family and so many other people that there was a bunch of secret sexual sin going on in the midst of a giant scandal, secret sexual sin going on. And then as it comes out, those leaders are trying to make excuses for that kind of stuff. It's like, no, not only is it not okay to engage in this stuff, it's very destructive. It's, it's, it's much, much worse. It's, it's, it's so much worse to do what Jezebel here has done and teach that it's essentially okay. Or that it's not as bad as what, you know, you, you think it is. No, no. Paul says, have nothing to do with sexual immorality. Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. This is a tongue-in-cheek, right? He's saying, you know, there's people in, in Thyatira who have learned Satan's deep secrets, right? This is... This is facetious, <laughs> like there's no good deep secrets of Satan. Um, but it's like, you know, Jezebel is taking you into some spiritual secret mysticism to help you know the secrets of the universe more, some stupid thing like that, right? That's the tongue in cheek. Continue on. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. 
How sad is that, right? I'm not going to impose anything else on you. It's tough for you right now, and I see that. Just hold on to what you have until I come. For some people in some certain cert, uh, situations, right? The Lord's like, you don't have to like overcome with this shining armor and be super victorious. All you have to do is hold on. In the midst of your depraved social context, sometimes throughout history, all that Jesus asks is that you just hold on until I come. Just don't give up. You, in certain contexts, you just don't give up and you win. Not everyone, not across the board, but in certain contexts, yes. Verse 26, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give you give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is one of the most powerful promises I can think of in the book of Revelation. And, and one of the things that we'll see, the things that Jesus gives us for those that overcome, it's, it, it, it strikes me every time I read this book. All of these things, almost all of these things are things that God has given to Jesus, rewards that God has given to Jesus. From book of Genesis on, we're told in the Messiah, he will rule the nations with an iron scepter and he will dash them to pieces like pottery. This is Jesus and Jesus alone is it's his birthright to be this one that rules and reigns for all eternity. And Jesus tells us, the, the ones who were born into rebellion and sin, we don't deserve the grace that he's given us, let alone rewards that he's going to give us. And the same Jesus, he's the one who shed his blood for us that did not deserve it. Not only will we inherit eternal life in the presence of God himself because of what Jesus has done, he's like, if you believe in me, I will give you the ability to rule and reign with me. We don't deserve the forgiveness that we get. But on top of that, Jesus adds that everything that the Father has given him, it's unthinkable the grace the Lord has given us. For the 10-week Bible study, I'm your host, Darren Hibbs, and I can't wait to see you next time. Well, thanks for joining me today on our study. Would you like and subscribe to wherever you're watching this? It really helps more people find out about our broadcast. And my heart is for more people to fall in love with God and his word. Yeah.